Welcome to the Future of Agriculture podcast, the show that explores the people, companies, and ideas that are shaping the future of agribusiness. Innovation, resourcefulness, and collaboration are essential for feeding a growing population, and we believe the agriculture industry is up for the challenge. Please welcome your host, Tim Hammerich. Howdy. Thank you so much for downloading an episode of the Future of Agriculture podcast. My name is Tim Hammerich. I'm an agribusiness recruiter. And so if you know anybody looking to hire or be hired in the business of agriculture, please have them reach out to me, Tim at aggrad.com. That's A-G-G-R-A-D. If you haven't reached out already and you've just kind of been uh, lurking in the shadows listening to this podcast, I would love to hear from you. Send me an email, find me on Twitter, LinkedIn, wherever you choose to spend your uh, social media time. I'm probably there. Would love to meet you and hear more from you and maybe even just set up a phone call and chat. We've done that with several listeners. And it's been a really, really good time and valuable feedback. Hey, speaking of feedback, I'm doing something special for the 100th episode. So this is episode 97. You've only got three more episodes to do this, so please do it. Uh, I have created a page at SpeakPipe, and all that is is a website and app where you can record yourself talking. If you go to SpeakPipe.com forward slash future of ag, you will be able to push a button and record yourself talking and send it to me. This is valuable because I would like for you to tell me one episode that stands out as a favorite to you, either a guest or a topic or an episode number that you really enjoyed. And just tell me why. Uh, it's really easy, and you might even hear yourself on a future episode of this podcast. So you're going to go to speakpipe.com, S-P-E-A-K-P-I-P-E.com forward slash future of ag. I'll also tweet that and pin it to my Twitter profile so that you could just head over there and click on it if you don't want to remember that URL. But please uh, do me a favor. Record yourself talking. I would love to hear your voice on this podcast, and I would love to hear your feedback on which episodes are standing out because we're going to hit this 100th century mark, and I want the next 100 episodes of this um, podcast to be influenced by your feedback. So head over there, speakpipe.com forward slash future of ag. I think if you're doing this from your phone, you might also need to download the free SpeakPipe app. Ooh, that's a lot to remember. Hey, exciting episode today. We are going to look at a one approach to uh, international ag development that is actually a for-profit private enterprise approach. Richard Lackey is on the show. He is the chairman of World Food Bank. If you ask World Food Bank what they do, they say that they leverage commodity storage technology to arbitrage inefficient food markets, both for profit and to bring stability to emerging markets. Their approach is very, very unique. You're going to hear all about it. But basically, they establish a commercial farm operation in a country like Uganda. Uh, they do this with investment from both private investors and from the country government itself. Uh, they establish this model farm and then build a entire value chain that includes storage, handling, and even processing uh, of that commodity. So what they can do is show the farmers in the area what they're doing from a production standpoint, but also provide markets so that theoretically, when technology and, and farming practices boost the yield, they actually have a place to go with it. So really enjoyed this concept. Concept in this chat with Richard Lackey, I think you will too. Richard's going to start off by telling us specifically within food security which problems they've decided to solve. You have a commodity background as well, and you know that when you go to the uh, to a commodity exchange and you buy corn or soy or wheat or what have you, that it comes with a guarantee of grade, that quality, that there's no bacteria, fungus, or what have you that it has the right color and texture and protein and what have you. Um, in emerging markets, 
the grades are not standard. So one person's grade one is another person's grade three. And they talk a lot about the issue of post-harvest loss. And when you go and look at what they call post-harvest loss, which in many countries is, is north of 40%, and you go to Uganda or Tanzania, Rwanda, Kenya, West Africa, you find that about 65, 70% of what's called post-harvest loss is really just crappy quality. It, it would never be able to be sold into, a, into an export market in the U.S. or Europe or the Middle East. So part of the challenge is that they have to grow better quality, and that's caused by a number of things. But getting them to grow a better quality is part of it. That also solves for challenges in nutrition and other things that they have. But the quality increases consistency. It increases the value per ton. And in many instances, it increases the number of tons they grow per acre or per hectare. And how exactly does, does World Food Bank start to, to solve those problems? What we do is we go into a country and we partner. We're a for-profit company, but we have a clearly benevolent mission. And we go into the country and partner with the country. And they literally invest their money into the World Food Bank. And the World Food Bank operates almost like a fund where we manage it and we get a carried interest in that effort. And on our own issuance, we fund model farms. So in Uganda, we have this 5,000-acre farm, about 4,200 smallhold farmers around that farm. We will source them through partners and organizations like Vision Fund, Care Foundation, and others. We'll help finance the seed and the fertilizer that we recommend. We will give them the software technology that sends them an instant message to say, we're going to plant on Wednesday or Thursday. You need to fertilize on Friday because you're going to have five days of rain. That'll maximize the benefit of fertilizer. You may have to irrigate next week because temperatures are going to have an average above this level, which may increase risk for aflatoxin or armyworm or what have you. We give them the technology. We show them how we're doing it. Uganda is like Missouri. It's a show-me country, right? And Rwanda and Kent, they're all the same way. They, they want you to show them in their neighborhood how to do it. So we create that model farm, and we repair the soil. We use things to fix the pH of the soil. We use organic fertilizers that build the nutrition and the good bacteria back into the soil. And then we make that accessible to them at Institutional by having them aggregate and buy with us. Uh, so that the pricing is more reasonable. And then we guarantee the offtake if they grow that way. So if the markets, if they grow three times as much, which happens a lot, if they grow that much then and the market won't absorb it, we will buy it and guarantee them a bid price so that they'll make money and be incentivized to do it again. And how is this model different from other development efforts that, that are out there? Uh, and, and I guess what's what's the reason for the differences? Oh, that's a good question. You know, um, most of the programs that are out there are, are just that. They're programs or projects to f- solve one piece of the value chain, either to make more readily available high-quality fertilizer or to, to start breeding higher-quality hybrid seeds or what have you. But oftentimes, it's not approached from a systematic point of view or an ecosystem view. And that's the way that we do it. So we go into a specific geography and make sure that we are in areas that we analyze the soil. We use proper fertilizers to repair that soil and maximize its its benefit. Uh, we make sure that there are people growing the proper seeds for that area. We, If they need to be funded, if they need additional technical support. Um, but we make sure that good seed is coming in, that there's sourcing for fertilizers. We get the governments to approve whatever, uh, for example, in East Africa, there's a big problem with uh, aflatoxin and with armyworm. 
and they've been studying therapies for two and a half years. In the meantime, farmers are losing their crops. So we get the government to agree to let us import it directly for people that are members of the World Food Bank. And uh, that expedites the cure of those farms. Uh, and then uh, we build processing plants or subsidize local processors to improve their facilities so that they can manufacture to what we call BRCM, British Retail Consortium Manufacturing Standards, so that when they produce, they can sell not just in their region or in their country, but they can sell internationally and export. And so that's a little bit different than most everyone else out there because most folks only look at one or two pieces of the puzzle, and we look at the entire value chain. You, you'd mentioned the, the project going on in Uganda, and I believe you said that you partnered with the country. So, so the actual government of the country invested in World Food Bank to bring it to Uganda. Is that right? Correct. So what's happening now, taking a step back, and I'm an advisor for USAID, and one of the things that's going on with USAID, with UN-based organizations like the World Food Program, development banks, uh, like the Dutch Development, the, the British Development Bank, and others, is they're starting to go from this project-based focus to a systemic or systematic uh, view. So they're looking to go to invest their dollars rather than just providing aid. They're trying to reduce the amount of aid they provide and increase the measure of development dollars. But in those development dollars, they want to see the countries being serious about solving the problem. So the, the number one recommended model for that is for them to engage with private enterprise that runs the program. That way it's accountable. There's risk capital on the table. And then they come in and they'll support that. So what happens is in Uganda, the government put in $50 million. Then the World Bank comes in and adds 30 to $40 million. IFC adds in 20% of those dollars. African Development Bank adds in uh, $30 million. And now you have an aggregated pool of dollars that's significant enough to literally change the face of agriculture in that country. And it's supported by that country. Uh, the Minister of Agriculture is kind of an advisor to it, but the day-to-day -day management and the accountability falls on a private enterprise, which is what people are uh, looking more to see. And, and you mentioned, and that actually answers what was going to be my next question, which which was, you know, why why be why not be a nonprofit? And that that makes a lot of sense. Um, break down for us, if you would, kind of like, you know, how World Food Bank makes money. I know you mentioned carried interest. Where is that value created, and how does uh, your, your investors get their money back? So we do two different things. We act as kind of the GP of of the bank. So there's the GP and the LP. So we have a two percent management fee for the assets under management and we have 20% of the profit. So it's only on net new profit, so it has to reach, every time it reaches a new high water mark or what we call a hurdle, we only get 20% of the next net new growth. So that's our primary way of making dollars. The other is that as the GP, we are also farmers and business managers ourselves. So we own the 5,000 acre farm that is the model farm in Rwanda where we're, we'll be launching next year, Rwanda, we will own the model farm. So the processing, the, the growth, the products that come out of that, those, those are our products. Um, we do leverage the storage technology, and this is where the medical background kind of comes into play. The same technology we use to hermetically seal pathogens is the same technology that is now being used to, to store in an airtight way commodities as they come directly out of the field. So I can take um, corn, soy, wheat, sorghum, teff, even 
dried fruits and vegetables, put them into these 100 metric ton bags. So they're, for people that don't can't visualize that, it's about the size of two 40-foot containers stacked on top of two 40-foot containers. That's the size of the bag. So it's a big bag. That is it's a big a, bag. <laughs> that's a, that's a, yeah, that's something you take to the grocery store. But, um, you know, you have a bottom section. You stack all the stuff in pallets on it. Then you put the top part on and zip it up. And the microbes and the pests that are still in there actually respire the remaining oxygen, and it becomes oxygen-free. If it's only half full, you have these one-way-in valves and one-way-out valves, and we can blast 3 or $4 worth of CO2 into it, and it displaces the oxygen outside, and it makes it an oxygen-free environment. And just like fire, when you remove oxygen, you remove the capacity for bacteria to grow, for fungus to grow. Uh, and for pests to grow. So there's no need to spray pesticides or herbicides or bactericides or anything. So there's actually been maize, corn, sitting in these bags for now 15 years in Kenya. And when you open the bag, the maize looks like it's three weeks old. Hmm. So you're literally able to remove the, what we would call the calendar risk of holding that commodity. So the other way that we make money, sorry to be a long way around the mulberry bush, but the other way that we make money is by manu- or by growing or buying from the farmers, storing it during the times of harvest. And then five months later during the dry season, we're able to push that product back into market. And so that's when prices are higher. So we make, we make the arbitrage on that by buying it at 220 and selling it at 280, for example. And, and it has a benefit on both sides. That, that's what the really neat thing is, is not only are we guaranteeing that farmer $220 a ton, for example, on corn, and, and over time that will actually go down as they become more and more efficient. The price each year we guarantee will go down because they will be growing more and more maize per acre. But the other side of it is uh, a real-life example is in Uganda this past January, um, well, 2017, maize was – 230 a ton. We were buying at 230 a ton in January. In July, it was 380 a ton. Well, the manufacturers just shut down when it gets to about 300. Mm. So three or four or five months a year in Uganda, Rwanda, Kenya, Tanzania, Malawi, uh, Mozambique, uh, Sierra Leone, Ghana, all these countries, they just shut down their factories. They quit processing food. There's no way they're ever going to get institutional investment dollars to help build their industrial base if they don't solve for the core problem, which is price volatility. And in the U.S., price volatility may be around 24%, stretches out to maybe 40%. Down there, it's 64%, stretching out to 180%, it's, which is just not sustainable. It, it's, it's a public uh, food security crisis for people just trying to feed their families, but it also prevents businesses from growing. So the other way that while we're making money by buying and then selling it later, the more we do that, the more that tightens up and it creates stability in those communities. Because the storage kind of smooths out the available supply and demand. Exactly right. Exactly right. And people say, well, eventually you'll quit making money. Uh, but that, that's not true. That's like in the U S we still have that volatility. It's just controlled. It's like I said, 24 to 40% a year instead of a hundred plus percent. And, and the inefficiency, I did a bit of work with, the head of policy and strategy at the World Food Program. And if you take emerging markets only that depend on agriculture and you look at the inefficiency between what farmers actually get paid and what the regional pricing is, and you, you say, what, is it, what should it actually be? If we go from that 100%, 180% or 64% down to 24 to 40, that's somewhere between $800 billion and $1.2 trillion per year. 
So it's a huge, huge market. It's a huge inefficiency. But even in sub-Saharan Africa, if you just solve, if you bring that 64% volatility to 50, you lift more than 100 million people out of poverty. But if you do it globally, you lift more than 1.2 billion people out of poverty. So the mechanism that we created is for that purpose. We'll measure our success by profits, but we'll be able to measure our success as easily in the metrics of uh, people being lifted out of poverty because you'll, you literally will have people skipping from po- the border of poverty, not to low income, but they literally, the ones that we've seen in Tanzania and Malawi and Uganda within two years, sometimes as much as three years, but in that period, they skip all the way to middle income. So it's a, it's a change in the global structure of, of uh, income. Yeah. Is that where the, the benevolent mandate comes in that you mentioned where you're a private company? So, you know, you want to maximize your shareholder value, but at the same time, you know, uh, you, you want to give the farmers a living wage. So uh, what does that look like in practice as far as weighing the two of those? That, that's the secret sauce, but it's also the biggest challenge that you face. And in working with groups like IFC and the World Bank and other organizations, um, we've really spent most of our effort focusing on governance. So our govern, our global board of directors, um, and, and we're still building out part of that, but that global board of directors is completely independent. Much of its record is uh, built by uh, agroeconomists. Some are representative of a region of the world, Middle East, Southeast Asia, Sub-Saharan Africa, Latin America, what have you. Um, but it's not tied to their ownership in the World Food Bank so that there's no manipulation of food prices. And the governance, the mandate for the board of directors is to ensure that rather than us buying at 230 a ton and waiting till it's all the way at 380, is to establish what normal metrics should be in that area and to start pushing product back into the market in that space. And again, there's plenty, plenty of money to be made. And in the old, you probably heard it as well, being a former trader, uh, you know, we used to always say that you know, pigs get fat and hogs get slaughtered. Right. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of dollars to be made and do it the right way. And um, we're very cognizant of the fact that we have a benevolent mission. We're out front with that to make sure that um, that, that, face stay, that we keep accountable to everyone. And um, I, you know, I may not be the, the chairman forever, so we want to build it and, and structure it in such a way that those who come up behind us in the Board of Governance maintain that benevolent mission. Why the need for for a farm? I mean, why not set up more of a like traditional retailer you'd see in the U.S. where you're you're selling inputs and maybe and you're buying you know you're buying the excess grain, you're store, processing it, storing it. Uh, why the need to also own a farm in the country? That's a great point. Well, there's a lot of if you go to Uganda or you go to Tanzania, the local farmers they're very hesitant to to take your word for buying this hybrid seed unless they can see it somewhere. So in many instances, the local extension agents have done that in, a, in some small capacity, but they typically don't do everything. They do, they show the seed in one area. Fertilizer companies may show fertilizer in another area, uh, but showing the entire process in one place is, it, it doesn't really exist too terribly much. Um, the other issue is when you check in these countries, if you go to places like Ghana, in Senegal, in West Africa, if you're looking at countries in sub-Saharan Africa, they are way, way under the numbers for what they need to provide, not only for human consumption, but for animal feed and the like. And it's the fastest growing population on the planet. So their demand for food is already higher than what they can provide in sufficient nutrition, and it's growing. 
So we, we literally need to get in, help them kickstart that effort uh, by growing larger farms. And, and you're not going to solve it just by doing one acre farms. You're going to have to do some commercial farming. And what will end up happening, uh, a fellow named Greg Page that you may be familiar with, the chairman of Cargill, this kind of, uh, you know, one of the things he told me early on when we started chatting was if you're going to lift 100 million people out of poverty, uh, especially if they're farmers in 10 years, there won't be 100 million farmers. There may only be 70 million uh, farmers. There may only be 25 million farmers because the rest are going to start making money. Their land prices go up because of the, the ability for that land to generate revenue. So they'll sell it to someone else and go open up a juice plant or a cereal processing facility or plant trees or do something else. And the other farmers will start acquiring and acquiring and acquiring and aggregating that one acre to be 20 acres or 50 acres, which makes them more efficient in being able to aggregate with everyone else. But unless they have that single farm that they can immediately get institutional uh, stylings with, and that means being able to buy an aggregate like they would with a traditional co-op, but not only being able to buy the inputs, but being able to sell in mass to export markets or to a guaranteed buyer. Those folks don't want to buy five tons or 50 tons. They want to buy 2,000 or 20,000 metric tons. So you have to create the size that's large enough that you can immediately take those other 4,000 farmers and have them add to what you do so that they get the benefits on the inputs and they get the benefits of taking it to market. Does that does that make sense? Yeah, it, it it does, and and it may be too early yet. But have you seen that happen yet? Kind of the you you see farmers make some income and decide, boy, this is this is so great. I've got money now. I think I want to go invest in what I really want, which is a you know a uh, clothing business or something like that. Yeah, we have. It's uh, it's interesting. Many people you've probably heard of the the women do really well in uh, aggregating, putting themselves together, and they'll buy other people's farms. Generally, it's kind of funny, but there's this traditional story. They'll go from one ton to two tons per acre. And so now they go from barely subsistence to now being able to put a new, and what we see most often is they put a new metal roof on their house. We don't think about it too often, but when you have to, when in places it rain 280 to 300 days a year, not having to move your family around inside the house during rainy season is kind of a nice thing to be able to do, to be able to keep your bed dry. So the first thing you see is them getting that tin roof on their house. The second thing is they start paying for school fees uh, on time and not having to borrow. And then they start buying the higher quality inputs on a regular basis. After about the third season, when they get to from one ton to two tons, they get to three tons or four. They start collaborating with the other ladies and saying, hey, let's buy some land together and do a cooperative farm. Or um, they buy a motorcycle for a son and he goes and does another business. Or they, they then they start doing a um, – uh, they they start a, a tomato business or what have you, and they start doing high value crops somewhere else. So it's an interesting, uh, but literally in three three or four seasons, you see those those changes start happening pretty quickly. That's incredible. Uh, from from an investor perspective, I know you all have a white paper on your website about food as an investment class. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that, like how you're making food an investment class and uh, why that's a bit of a paradigm shift for some people? Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, we always think of traditional commodities um, as a 90 to 120 market where from the time you pull that corn off the cob or you pull the cob out of the field, you've got to get it into a pig pen or into a cereal 
or sold in about 90 to 120 days. If you store it, even if you store it for six months or a year or longer, the quality typically goes down. The grade starts to drop. It doesn't maintain. Uh, so the ability to now store commodities for years and years and years and maintain grade is a game changer. So we expect that in the next 10 years, you're going to see public employee retirement funds, uh, traditional pension funds and the others holding one or 2% of their assets in food. And those will actually be holding the hard underlying asset of corn and soy and wheat and sorghum and teff and what have you stored in strategic areas all over the world. Um, it'll be holding the locally grown assets that can be pushed back in to the market as needed, kind of like what we do. Um, and that's what, that'll be kind of the mechanism that helps support all of that. The other side of it is you're going to have people that are investing, like the people that come through Global Food Exchange, which is our parent entity, or the World Food Bank, and they invest. Um, they're able to make dollars on, on the income in controlling, in, or not in controlling necessarily, but in, in having the vertical integration of the value chain. And when you're doing that, then you – uh, you reduce the risk of farming alone. You reduce the risk of manufacturing alone because you can, if the inputs cost more, you make less on the processing, but you make more on the farming and vice versa. So when you have the whole value chain, it smooths out the profitability. Um, and when you have institutional size, the rates of return are substantially higher. And that's why, you know, it's not uncommon for us to see 48 plus percent IRRs. Um, and at the same time, you're literally changing the life of tens of thousands of people at a time. With a project like the one in, in Uganda, because I know it's it's one farm, uh, I mean, does it have the potential to impact the entire country, or how big of a region are we talking about, you know, the effectiveness of, of the project? You know, metrics is a really big part of what we do. And um, in that farm with 5,000 acres, we have about 4,200 farmers that are affiliated now. We have three other cooperatives, which will add about 40,000 more. Um, we'll be just under 50,000 farmers within two years. So it won't, it won't affect the entire country, but for that space, it'll affect about 50,000 farmers directly. The average family is four. It, it affects four to five people. So you'll affect 200,000 people. You'll change the livelihoods of 200,000 people with that single farm. But what ends up happening is that we will have two other farms in Uganda. So that one's in the West. We have another one in the South and one in the East. And so we'll do the same thing there. So if you take 40,000, 40,000, 40,000, now you have 120,000 people. But what we really, really want to see is the goal is not to be Walmart where we come in and we control the marketplace. The goal is to come in and set a standard of quality and, and process. And so by doing that, what we'll see is, uh, that go from a farm like ours to 50 other smaller farms that build on that volume. And, and then you can do that. And, and when we walk it out, uh, because, the, you know, assuming what the adoption rates are based on what we've seen over the past 15 years, uh, we could affect probably uh, six to eight million people over 10 years in Uganda. And that is a game changer. Um, so we will affect them, but we won't, we won't control their marketplace. We, we're a free market. We're free market believers. We want them just to have access to it. As you mentioned, one of the keys here is is the improved genetics. And I imagine in these places, the farmer is saving their seed year on year and the quality doesn't get any better because it's the same genetics. When when you all come in, how do you know 
what genetics to use? I mean, when you're new to a country, how do you know what genetics are going to work? Um, because I would think that would be what the whole model is based on. Or am I missing something there? Oh, no, that's a, that's a great point. That's a great point. The, um, and, and one reason we're in Uganda is the government is very open to doing this. Rwanda, Kenya, Tanzania uh, are also, and as well as Ghana and Senegal and others, are, are very proactive in this space. So in those areas, the government has its own uh, research center that's studying, you know, 20 or 30 different varieties of maize and eight or 10 varieties of soya and others. We are trying to increase the capacity uh, in part by sending them um, seeds that have been studied. I literally had a call yesterday with a group. I'm taking about eight different seed varieties. I'll be bringing those F1s into Uganda. They'll be testing on part of our fields. And, uh, and promoting that. As that does well, then they will essentially partner with the local seed manufacturers or the, or the replicators and the government. And Uganda, it's an organization called NARO. And, that, and then the government will facilitate uh, replicating those higher quality hybrids. So we try to get one season just to see if it's worth something and then get them out there growing. Um, so you have two challenges. One is finding which, which hybrid varieties. And most of them don't use what, what the common market called genetically modified. They use hybrids, but anyway. Yeah, we've had um, a recent podcast, I think, mentioned Uganda as uh, it being illegal to have uh, genetically modified organisms there. Is that, is that right? Correct. That is correct. And they're, they're actually, they're entertaining bringing them in now. Uh, but part of the concern they have is that several of the countries around there don't allow GMO. Hmm. So if you grow, then they'll put restrictions on export of anything. So then they'll lose a lot of their export market. So it's, it's a bit of a political issue down there sure. and they don't Everywhere. understand the, <laughs> it's a pretty political issue. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah. That's right. That's exactly right. Uh, so, but, but there are, there is a potential for good hybrids. One thing that's interesting is we use a satellite based technology that helps the, the same thing we use to help farmers uh, identify uh, when they should plant all that actually can look at the soil densities and the, evapotranspiration rates and the moisture um, and, and temperature histories. And they can tell from there, they can take that and say, here's the three-year, five-year, 10-year history. And they can go and search and say, where else in the world does this happen? Oh, well, this happens in this part of Brazil where they grow this variety of soy or maize, and it does really, really well. So to some degree, we are able to identify what that country has as an asset as far as its soil and its weather patterns, and then look for other parts of the world where uh, that are successful in growing something else and bring that there. And that could be even other crops. It could be potato varieties or vegetables or what have you. Uh, but that's part of what we do. You're, you, you pointed it out. The biggest problem is right now they use legacy seed, they, uh, and, the, and the rates go down regularly. Some of them have been using the same seed they pulled off their farm for 20 years. And there's no wonder that their production is so low. Right. Yeah, it's it's often an argument here in, in that whole political debate about, oh, the poor farmers can't use the, the seed that they've saved for years and years. And, and I've been to Liberia, and I've, I've seen firsthand what that looks like. And and it's not all it's cracked up to be, I'll, I'll tell you. So and a lot of times when people use that argument, I don't think they really understand the fundamentals of um, what these improved varieties yeah. have done, uh, you know, just hybrid, you take the whole GMO thing sure. out. I mean, just hybrid varieties, really. Um, that's exactly right. It's, uh, it's pretty incredible. Yeah. Product. It's not, it's not, they don't have the right. It's, they don't have the opportunity to use something else. Exactly. To be the argument, right? Yep. So this mm -hmm. might be kind of a, 
far off distant question. You know, it's, I guess it's easy to ask this from, from an outside, but when you're in it every day, it's probably uh, not foreseeable, but is there a scenario where you kind of are so successful, you, you put yourself out of business a little bit in with this model? That, that's a good question, but it, it's probably, it probably would never happen. It's kind of like the commodity markets in the U S you know, there still is movement in those markets are still inefficiency. And, 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 you know, from your background and as I do that there's tremendous volatility in the U.S., but it is somewhat controllable since to at least the degree that cereal manufacturers and and uh, bar manufacturers and other uh, food businesses are able to hedge that risk of, of price volatility. Um, but a large part of it is this is being able to push on on a regular basis those inputs into the marketplace, and that's why you know we pull grapes from. Peru part of the year, we pull them from other places part of the year, we pull bananas from here part of the year. So as all that comes to pass in, um, in sub-Saharan Africa, and we expect to, to expand into, into Asia and India and Latin America and what have you, um, we will just facilitate those markets becoming more like they are here. But I don't know that it'll be any more, um, it'll be any less of need than it is in a place like here. So it'll provide the food security and the food storage. And, and the bottom line, to be perfectly frank, is if it does, if we do go out of business because it becomes that efficient, for one, we will have made billions and billions and billions of dollars, so far more than we will ever need or use, um, which will go to do the same model in solving the, the problem with medicine or education, probably. But um, but you'll have changed the world. You literally will have lifted over a billion people out of poverty. So if we go out of business and we lifted a billion people out of poverty, I'm pretty okay with that. Yeah, <laughs> that wouldn't be so bad. Let me put it that way. Uh, yeah, and I know, okay. obviously, a big part of the investment to, to move into a country comes from the, the government of that country itself. But you also uh, have private investors as well. Is that right? Correct. So the parent entity, which acts as the GP for the bank, we, we do have private investors. And most of those have been family offices, foundations, high net worth individuals. And, uh, and we continue to kind of raise dollars. The value of the company keeps going up. So we're hesitant to raise a lot at one time um, because as we get each new project started, the value of the company goes up. So, uh, But each time we go into a new country, for example, in Rwanda, uh, we're in Uganda, we're, we have a, we'll end up with probably three firms, but we're growing primarily cash crops. In, in Rwanda, we're going to focus heavily on horticulture. So you've got a much higher expense to start off because you're doing greenhouses, and uh, fruit and nuts and things like that. So we'll go out and do another pool of dollars as in, in common stock and go from there. But, uh, yeah, we're always happy to talk with people, especially strategic partners that want to be investors. Well, very cool. Richard, this has been really interesting. You know, I, I've, I've done some episodes on development work, and obviously the whole private agribusiness uh, mindset is that there are a lot of opportunities in emerging markets. So it's kind of cool to find a model like this that is uh, geared towards developing kind of sustainable agricultural economies in, in these places. So thank you for, for taking the time today. If somebody wants to learn more about World Food Bank, uh, what's a good place for me to send them? Well, th thank you, first of all, for allowing me to come on and share the story. Uh, the URL is worldfoodbank.org, and we are for-profit, but we operate like World Bank and others, so we operate under a .org right now, but it's worldfoodbank.org. And if you go there, you can also sign up for our newsletter. So we have a monthly newsletter that tells about the different meetings and things that we're doing. We have a couple of trips a year where people can come out and see the farms, meet the managers, see things going at harvest, uh, what's going on there. And uh, we'll also have a meeting, for example, in the fall where I'm bringing in the prime minister from Uganda, uh, 
President Kagami's team will be there from Rwanda, the head of the USAID, the head of the Rockefeller Foundation, a number of folks, and they can come and rub elbows with, with people and get, an, and get a feel for what's really going on globally. So if you're interested in kind of the macro view of how we're looking to affect change in agriculture, it's a, we're, we're a good group to be tied into, I think. Fantastic. All right. We'll make sure we link up to that in the show notes to get on the newsletter and uh, get informed about those types of events. That sounds really interesting. Um, thank you again, Richard. I really appreciate you being on the show. Oh, thank you so much. I'm, I'm honored. Thank you very much to Richard Lackey for being on the show. Enjoyed that talk. It's an interesting approach, uh, kind of turning some ag development efforts on their head a little bit and using the private enterprise. I'm curious about your thoughts on this uh, and other episodes we've had. And we're on 97 now. So head over there. That's speakpipe.com forward slash future of ag. I want to hear your voice on this podcast. I think everybody will agree. We're tired of hearing mine. And so let's get some of your ideas uh, in your own voice on the show. It should take you just about 30 seconds to hop on there. Hit record. Tell us your favorite episode and would love to feature you here. We will be back next week as we roll into sustainability at scale. Thank you for listening to the Future of Agriculture podcast with Tim Hammerich. Visit futureofag.com. That's futureofagag.com today to get connected into careers in the agriculture industry. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Oh, 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 oh,